If you've just tuned in, uh, welcome. Um, uh, my name is Jamie Mulvaney. I'm on the staff team here at HTC, and it's lovely to see you. If we haven't met yet, it'd be great to uh, meet you. Um, and um, I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing with you tonight. Um, for those of you who have been here or haven't been here, we've been going through Ephesians the past couple of weeks, and that's what we're doing every Wednesday night uh, in August. Um, and the, the way that this is working, apparently, is that we're, we're bringing our own Bibles or using the Bibles that are here. So whether you've got a paper Bible or a digital Bible, um, we'll turn to those. Um, so we've looked at, so far, how um, we've looked at, at a sort of an overview of Ephesians and the great prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, and how uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is this hinge point in, uh, in the, the letter to the Ephesians. And today we're going to um, go through quite a lot, actually. We're going to have a look at, at Ephesians at 2, uh, 4, and 5, and what it means to be the church. And I love Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I don't know about you, but um, when I read this letter, something sort of ignites in me. You sort of see the way that the world is supposed to work, and you get to see Jesus in his glory, and you see the way the church is supposed to be, and something sort of builds within me when I read this letter. And I don't know whether you've sort of grappled with Ephesians much before, but it's a hugely exciting letter. For a moment, I just wonder what, what words come into your mind when you think about the church. If we were going to do sort of one of those psychometric tests where I also say the word church, and then what was the first word that would come into your mind uh, when you think about the church? Sorry? Family. Body. Glorious. Wonderful. Sunday. Sorry? Family, yes. Yeah, family again. So there's lots of words there. Now, I'm not going to ask you to call out these ones. But I wondered, too, if you were to ask a non-Christian friend what words come into their mind when they think about the church, I wonder what they would say, too. Because if somebody was to um, grow up on a desert island and uh, they were to be sent the book of Ephesians and they were to read it over and over and over, and then they were to fly to London and come to Holy Trinity Clapham, and as they entered this church building, sort of expecting to see what they read about in the letter to the Ephesians, I wonder what they would experience. Would it match up? Would it match up to this loving, empowering community that we read about in Ephesians? Do we ring true? And that's what I want to explore tonight for our church, for the wider church of Christ across the world. And to do that, we really need to understand the context of Paul. Paul was, in writing about the church, he was writing about something um, so different, so foreign, so distinct to anything that had ever existed before. I think we'll discover again tonight that the, the church is not usual. It's definitely not normal. It's different. It's countercultural. But sort of who wants to be normal anyway? Last time I checked, normal is just a setting on the washing machine. There was nothing to compare the church to. And Paul tries, he, he calls 
uh, the church a family, as we've heard, as a, as a body or a temple. But he has to go to great lengths to describe how the church should be. And he isn't speaking into a void, he isn't speaking into nothingness, into a vacuum. This isn't a theory, because the church is the raw materials of everyday people like you and me. And back then, there was sort of no analogy that would um, really describe a movement of this kind. Whether it's the Roman army, whether it was the civil service, whether it was the Jewish synagogue, none of these things quite match up to the church. And so the challenge, the challenge facing Paul and um, others around him was just how do we live as this extended family of God without the kinship of ancestral ties, of symbols, without the sort of geographical focus on Jerusalem or the temple, and without a central authority like that of Caesar? It mattered that the followers of Jesus should find a way of living together as a single family despite all of the inevitable tensions. So there in chapter 2, from verse 11, he begins describing how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were on the out. They didn't have the physical sign of the covenant, of being in the community of God's promise, of his faithfulness, this sign of, of circumcision. And in verse 12, he says they're without hope and without God in the world. Can you imagine that description, having known Jesus to be without hope, without God in the world? And so you've got these people outside of the covenant, and by definition you've also got people who are inside the covenant, the Jewish people. People who take the temple really seriously, because it's the place of the presence of God. And also people who take scripture seriously as well, as God's revelation to them. And so there's this hostility of defining yourself against the other, one way or the other, of being defined as, as the other being against you. And we can look at this context and sort of think, well, it's, this is sort of really primitive. But just look at the way that our supposedly enlightened world is constantly seeking to carve us up into different identities, into different labels. But the most important distinctive thing about us is our class, or our occupation, or our race, or our sex, or our sexuality. Move over Jane Austen, this is pride and prejudice. We judge each other, we condemn each other. In our hearts, we pigeonhole people, and it pits us against each other. After all, we've, we, we know about the battle of the sexes. And we see in verse 14 and 16 that word hostility, hostile. And that's been our nature, to be hostile to each other and hostile to God. And what Paul describes here is, is reconciliation, not just to God, but to each other. In verse 15 and 16, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The opposite of hostility is peace. And so we sort of see the centrality of the cross here. That image that has um, not only a vertical line, but also a horizontal line. So we're brought near to God, and we're also brought near to one another. And this is God's reconciling act on the cross. And we see it again in verse 13. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so it's Jesus' death on the cross. It's his blood that reconciles us. This is not just for those who are far away, but also for those that were in the covenant as well. You read there in verse 17 that Jesus came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. In the next verse, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So circumcision is no longer the mark of the covenant, but the cross is. Because although here we have two groups, the, the Jewish people seen as being near and the Gentiles as being far away, in reality, both groups are far away. Quite like the, the parable of the prodigal son with the Gentiles being the, the son who is far away and the, and the Jew, Jews being like the older son who stays home but in his heart is far away. So we have outsiders and insiders. Neither character is able to reconcile himself to his father, to God, except through Jesus. And on Sunday, across all of our services, we looked at, at Matthew chapter 20. We looked at um, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And you've got the people that uh, rock up to, to work at the very end of the day, and they're paid exactly the same amount as those who have been slaving away the entire day. The reward was the same. Because whether we see ourselves as being core or as periphery, as near or as far, the only way that we receive the reward is through not what we've done, but through what Jesus has done. And at times, you and I will feel near to God, and at times we will feel far away from God. And that's inevitable. And we are the church. We are to be people who remind each other of who we are. In this sort of snippet from Ephesians chapter 2, the the only imperative, the only word in this passage which says something that we should do, it's there in verse 12. It's the word remember. Remember where you've come from. Remember who you are. Remember that Jesus has died for you. And why do we remember? Why are we told, commanded to remember? Because we forget. Remember that while the world will tell you that you're X, Y, or Z, you're not marked by any characteristic other than by what Jesus has done for you on the cross, by the faithfulness of Jesus. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, in the silver chair, um, Jill is seeking to rescue Prince Rillian. And Aslan says to Jill, but first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. We are to be the people that remember the sign. Remember the way of the cross. The cross is our sign. And when the enemy accuses you, remember the cross. When you feel far away, remember the cross. When you're feeling proud, remember the cross. 
When you lack peace within yourself or with other people, remember the cross. It's why we celebrate communion. It's to remember what Jesus has done for us. To be a community of people all gathered together on an equal footing around the cross. It's why we preach on the cross. Because the gospel isn't good advice, but it's good news for everyone. For those who are far away and for those who are near. And it's why we sing about the cross. Because through Jesus' death on the cross, we are freed from the barriers, we're freed from the rules, we're freed from the regulations to worship and access the Father by the Spirit. It's why we don't say when we come to uh, the peace in the service, I respect you or I tolerate you. But we hear that proclamation, that declaration of the peace that Christ proclaims over each one of us. And having received that peace, we are able to extend that peace to one another. Remember, remember, remember. And Paul here in this part of the passage, he's calling us to remember. And then Paul shimmies from the past tense to the present tense. And he builds this logic of what's happened. Therefore, what is happening now? Based on what's happening on the past, in the past, what is happening now? And he says there in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so the essence of our church is not the makeup of this building. It's not whether or not William Wilberforce sat where we are right now. But it's us. It's you and me, the people, built on the foundation of Jesus and the, and the leadership of the church that have written down for us the word of God. And we, the people, we, the people, are the new temple, the place where God lives by his Holy Spirit. And so instead of all of our care and devotion and attention to detail being devoted to a physical building, this obsession of God's people as it was the place of God's presence. We pay care and attention and detail to the new temple, to the body of Christ. And as we flick over into chapters 4 and 5, Paul outlines how this new body, how this temple will work. If chapter 2 was an outline in, in who gets to be part of the new body, then chapters 4 and 5 are all about how this body will work. In chapter 5, in verse 15, if you flick over, Paul writes in, in verse 15, Be very careful then how you will live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He's calling us here to pay care and attention. He goes on in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. And with apologies to Julie Andrews in her starring role as Maria von Trapp. 
There is nothing better that we can do with our lives than to find out what God's will is and to do it with all, all of our heart. And if we want to know what God's will is for us, what his will is for the church, we go to chapter 4. In verse 11, we see there, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. So each of us, not just the clergy, but each one of us to be equipped for works of service. And just like our vision statement, every life bearing fruit for Jesus, so that the body may be built up, so that we would reach unity in faith and in knowledge of Jesus, and becoming mature and attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. No small vision. And so the vision for the church is Jesus. Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is our goal as well. The way in is the way on. And a few verses later, when in verse 21, Paul writes about the way of life that we learned when we first heard about Jesus, the Greek means really, to to learn Jesus. To learn Jesus. That we're not signing up to Christianity. This is not about an institution. We are learning Jesus. The goal of your life and my life is to be so focused on Jesus, to be so overcome, to be so overwhelmed by Jesus, that we're becoming like him in our everyday interactions, in the way that we live our lives in the big things and in the small things. And so this has two fairly major implications that Paul looks at for how we are to be as the body of Christ. And these are not um, fads. They're not add-on in-app purchases. The super-duper keen being Christians. They are essential to being the church of Jesus. So what are they? The first one is unity. Unity. And it's a huge claim, a huge claim when you consider where we've come from. But we remember the cross and we remember the reconciliation to God and to each other. And so Jesus has united the the two most deeply separated categories of humanity in the history of the world into an entirely new people central to his grand plan to unite all things together in him. And so the new society that that Jesus has brought into being is nothing short of a new creation, a new human race, whose characteristic is no longer alienation like it was before, but reconciliation. No longer division, no longer hostility, but unity and peace. And how is this possible? Well, it's through Jesus. To be centered around Jesus. Chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 4. We read there, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is what unites us. 
the one God. And unity, however, does not mean uniformity. We see here such a rich diversity of gifts. In verse 12, he refers to the purpose of of distinct ministries. Christ gives his gifts to the church for the building up of the body. We see here the understanding that Paul has is that the ministry of the church is not the preserve of the clergy, but it's the privilege of everyone in the church to participate in. What is your work of service for the church, I wonder? What is your particular gift? You will have a U-shaped ministry, something that is distinct to offer this church that nobody else has to offer this church. And so it's why we as the staff team here at HTC put on things like the leadership course to help us think through what it means to both have the character but also the competency and to know what our calling is in the church. It's why connect groups are such a great place for us to have a go, to try out things, to to try out hospitality, to try out leading a Bible study or a talk or, or leading worship or whatever it may be. I might be ordained, but you guys are all the real ministers. You're ministering there on the front lines of your families and your community and where you live and your workplace and where you're studying. Ministering to people and offering them the peace and the reconciliation that deep down we're all crying out for to be ministering to those inside of the church as well. And so we see this development that Paul is building here. Away from being focused on my rights and and what I get to do in the world and who gets to be in the covenant, but recognizing that our place in the covenant is a gift from God. And so it's no longer about arguing about my rights and my place in the world, but living from a place of responsibility. Maturing the the way that you do in family, of taking on roles and taking on responsibilities, to, to exercise authority, to not be consumers but contributors. And if you don't know what it is that God is calling you to, ask him, ask him. But also try some things out. See where he leads. I remember joining a particular church. On my first day, I got chatting to one of the leaders there. And um, I, I came back for the evening service, and, and he asked me to help uh, put out cushions on the floor, as we all sort of sat on the floor, um, and, um, and to put out Bibles as well. And, and I just sort of got involved doing that. And then after a few weeks, um, one of the leaders at the church said, Jamie, can we get you to come down the front and just pray for someone? I was like, well, I haven't really ever sort of done prayer ministry in church before, but you know, I'll give it a go. And before long, I sort of realized, oh, I think this is my sweet spot. I think this is what I was put on this earth to do. This is what I feel called to do, is to come alongside people and to minister to them and to pray for them and to, to see God's heart for their life. And it was really out of just giving those things a go that 
I ended up just sort of dipping my toe in the water of seeing, I wonder whether God might be calling me to be ordained. And now for some of us, there will be a calling to go into full-time church leadership. But for all of us, wherever we've been placed, wherever God has called us to, he will be calling us to minister with the particular gifts that he has given us to the church for. We are all called to build up. To build up, to strengthen, to encourage the church. The moment that people in the church are commissioned to serve, to minister, is is actually not the ordination service. It's when we get baptized. When we are baptized into the life of the Trinity, we are commissioned to go and to minister to others. As we're baptized, we put to death the old self, as we we see in chapter 5. And we put on, put on the new self. And God doesn't want any of us, including me, he doesn't want any of us to remain stagnant, but to grow and to mature in our ability to serve others. In verse 8. In verse 8 of, um, of chapter 4. He, um, he quotes Psalm 68, and he, he writes about, um, he says that when Jesus ascended on high, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And if you sort of delve a bit deeper, and you see that this Psalm 68, and this, this thing that he's quoting here, it's um, this amazing picture of Mount Sinai the place of the presence of God where heaven meets earth. And it's the God who saves his people and he calls them into significance and into service. In in verse 16, we read that from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And all this time, as we looked at earlier, there's a context to this. In verse 14, we see that, well, there's a dangerous context. We're not sort of simply coasting along in neutral territory. Dangerous things are happening out there. And we have to think through how we are to be as the church, to put the effort in, bless you. Um, and, And we will contrast with the world around us. There will be a difference between us and the world. So instead of being like the world around us, instead of having that deception, we speak the truth in love. By being loving, by being truthful about the way that the world works and not standing idly by as people are deceived and taken in by things that lead them away from the foundation of Jesus. In John chapter 17 the prayer that Jesus prays before he goes to die. He prays to the Father that all of them, and in that he means the believers that come after him, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' vision is not words on a page or stones or bricks or mortar, but people. The Sagrada Familia is the Basilica and the expiatory church of the Holy Family in Barcelona. Well, it, 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 it's a work in progress. It's a church in the making, if you will. Um, Anthony Gaudi began it in 1883 until his death in 1926. But the builders are still going. And estimates are currently that the building will be finished by about 2026, but you know, who knows. Um, and when he was asked if he was concerned at how long it was taking, Gaudi replied, my client is not in a hurry. So when in verse 2, Paul writes to be patient, be bearing one another in love. I think of how patient Jesus has been with each one of us. I think of how patient he is with each one of us. Jesus is not in a hurry. We are to be patient with each other. Patient with each other in love. The building takes time. Be completely humble and gentle. And we're not called to be humble because we're not like God. We're called to be humble because we're called to be exactly like God. Jesus, central to his character, is this humility. Jesus humbled himself, we read in Philippians. In verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Division is so destructive because it, it mars the image of God in us that we're supposed to represent as the church to the world. And sometimes friendships can become awkward and we can withdraw ever so slightly or we can hold grudges, little sort of sweet revenge. But Paul is saying here, don't be casual about relationship breakdown. Go after restoring relationships. Make every effort to repair and rebuild your relationships. And the Sagrada Familia might still be being built, but you can still go in and worship. And although we too are under construction, we too can invite people into the church to worship God. And so Paul, he bookends this chapter either side with these commands on, on how we are to love one another. And he ends chapter 4 by saying, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The way in is the way on. The way that Jesus is with us is the way that we are to be with one another. And just before this, in, in verse 30, he, he writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And nothing grieves the Holy Spirit more than when we don't seek peace. If you think about it, um, you have a hundred different pianos, all tuned to the same, the, the, the one fork. They're all tuned to each other. And we are to be people that are all tuned to Jesus. 
to strive to be closer to him and in so doing become tuned to one another. And this unity only works if it's based around Jesus, the real Jesus, not the Jesus of our imaginations, not the Jesus of picture books, but the Jesus revealed to us in his word and by his spirit. So we depend on Jesus, and it's our mutual depending on Jesus that brings us closer to one another. And Jesus being the cornerstone, as we see here, he is part of and essential to the fact, well, he is totally essential to the foundation. But he's holding us steady, keeping us in line. And, and being centered on Jesus, we can celebrate diversity. And so what was exclusively a Jewish building, the temple, Jesus very controversially includes Gentiles too in the construction of that temple. And so as we all together from our various backgrounds come together and are tuned to this fork of Jesus, the world will hear this beautiful sound. And so often that's not the sound that we let the world hear. We are to seek unity, to pray for it, pray for it just as Jesus prays for it. So that's unity. But then there's another non-negotiable. Another area that Paul seems to be quite fixated on when it comes to how the church is to be. And it's the word holiness. It's not a particularly trendy word. And it's not something that the global church really focuses much on at all. But Paul is at pains to describe the importance of holiness to our lives. That this is part of what distinguishes the church from the world. Not only unity, but holiness. And we all experience huge pressure to blend in. And at the same time, we're called to be distinctive. And holiness is part of how we build one another up. Chapter 4, verse 31. Paul writes, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And instead, what do we replace these things with? With being kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you and this is how we knowing that we are dearly loved children just as we saw back in chapter 2 we're part of the household of God how we as dearly loved children are called to live a life of love to know that we are Jesus family so we can take on his family likeness so we can be like Jesus to live a life that looks like Jesus and therefore will point people to Jesus we see there from Verse 3 of chapter 5. He calls out sexual impurity, greed, filthy language. It's as if the the sins of the tongue and the sins of, of sexual sins for Paul are the things that he thinks. They're really the things that drag us down and make sure that we are useless in the world today. And what does he say here? What do we replace these things with? We replace these things with thanksgiving. And later in the chapter, he talks about speaking to one another with with psalms, with hymns, with songs from the Spirit. And this is not just an individual thing, but, but speaking to one another of building up the church. He says, basically, only say what builds one another up. And you can contrast this to the way that he calls out the negative use of words. The primary way that we build each other up is through what we say. And there's only one way forward for us, and that is to go where the Messiah has led, through death and into new life. Back in chapter 4, in verse 22, he says, put off, put off. And that is 
the language of baptism, to put off the old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires. And we die to ourselves, just like Jesus died on the cross. And the key word here is, is self. We live in an age where the self drives everything. It's the determining factor of everything. The self-e, self-improvement. It drives everything that we want to, to promote ourselves, but also to protect ourselves. But he writes then in, in verse 24, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and in holiness. And we need to do this every single day. But how do we do this? We just looked at verse 22, we just looked at verse 24. In between, verse 23, he says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Just like he writes in Romans about us being a living sacrifice, being like Jesus, but that our minds can be renewed. There's a lot about your life and my life that we can't change. But we can change our minds. We might not be able to change all of our circumstances, but we can change our minds. To take every thought captive to Jesus. And Jesus came to free us. Yes, he did. But right there at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord. We've been freed, but at the same time, we've been made captive to Christ. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. And he goes on, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And that word worthy, it's not about how we achieve our salvation. But it's sort of a a picture of scales, if you like. We've received this calling. We've received this extraordinary calling from Jesus to be in his family, to be part of the body of Christ. And we've received his holiness And we want our lives to sort of measure up to that. Of course, nothing other than Jesus would earn us our salvation. But we've been made holy so we can be holy. And the Holy Spirit can empower us to live holy lives. In chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. This doesn't just sort of happen by accident. You have to think about it. You have to plan it. You have to seek it out. And so if we are to go back to the previous chapter, to verse 23, and we see that thing about being renewed by the attitude of our minds, it follows a number of verses from verse 17 about futile thinking. Futile thinking as a result of hardening hearts. Indulging in sensuality, indulging in impurity and greed. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit by behaving in a prideful way. By essentially saying, God, I know better than you. I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where I've just sensed the Holy Spirit just drawing back. And every Christian has the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but there may be some of us here tonight and you know what it's like to live with the presence of God. You know what it's like to have his blessing and his power and his anointing in your life. And maybe it's even driven you to tears knowing that some of the stuff you're engaging in right now is grieving the Holy Spirit. 
I'm really drawn to um, this psalm of David where he repents, where he turns away from what he's been doing. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. None of us are perfect. We're all fragile. We're all weak. But we're not defined by stuff. We're not defined by morality. We're not defined by anything other than Jesus. And if we find ourselves getting carried away again with the extraordinariness of Jesus, we will live lives in line with his will. We talk about revival. We talk about seeing God's power and changing London again today. But we act sort of surprised when we don't see these things and we never seek after holiness. We're not called to be beach body ready, but to be Christ body ready. God has big plans for his church. He has big plans for us. He has plans for the whole world to be filled with the knowledge and the glory of God, that all might believe in him. And yet we often pay more care and attention to the cosmetic stuff in church than to the actual building, to the people that we're called to be, the people that we're wanting to become, the, the people, the body that we're wanting to invite people into. In chapter 4, verse 25, Paul writes, Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. I wonder if you saw this in the, um, in the news the other day. As, there's a doctor-turned-Edinburgh uh, fringe comedian, Adam Kay, and he writes about the, difference, uh, the, the sort of different lies that people tell doctors from how many units of alcohol they consume during the week uh, to dates of conception that would have required time machines and teleportation for the gentleman in the room to have played any role whatsoever. He writes that um, being straight with us, being straight with medical professionals about the little things saves us all time and lets us get to the heart of the matter. In chapter 5, verse 13, Paul writes, but everything exposed to the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Yes, we're not perfect people, but we're no longer dead. We are alive, and there's no place for shame here in the body of Christ. The word authentic is the first value that we talk about here at HTC. And there's no place for masks in this church. We all have stuff that we struggle with. We all have stuff that we wrestle with. And speaking the truth about ourselves and what we're struggling with to those that we trust brings things into the light. The doctor, Adam Kay, says, don't underestimate the relief that comes from being open about your issues. The truth feels good once it's out there. 
So say it how it is. It's such a relief to be real. And what we find is when we're true with those around us, there's this antiseptic quality of light that makes the sin dwindle and lose its power. It also frees other people to be real because we're modeling that trust. We're modeling that authenticity of not living in shame. God intends us to shine. So we remember. Again, we look to the cross and we remember. Verse 8, we were once in darkness, but now we are light. We are light in the Lord. So we find out what pleases the Lord. Again, we find out what God's will is. And really at its heart, there's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's about remembering who we are. Recognizing who we are now. Recognizing who we were before. And being led by the Holy Spirit. Being holy is not about being holier than thou. It's not about thinking that you're in and other people aren't. Think about Jesus. He has this magnetic quality to people of doubtful reputation. To people on the fringes. I love what Rowan Williams writes, former Archbishop of Canterbury. Is what he writes about when you meet a holy person, and I find it so true. When you meet a really holy person, it makes you feel better than you are. The holy person somehow enlarges your world, makes you feel more yourself, opens you up, and affirms you. And imagine if that's what they said about the people at HTC people at Holy Trinity Clapham. My goodness, life can be hard, but when I catch up with my friend who is part of HTC, I, I feel better about myself. My world enlarges and it opens up and they make me feel more and I feel affirmed and they make me feel like I want to be more. And that is what us being Jesus to the world looks like. In chapter 4, we see how Jesus descended at his death, and then he ascended. He ascended higher than all the heavens, and he's taken us with him. In Jesus, the amazing thing is that we are seated at the right hand of God, and we are to be people who remember, who remind each other of who we are and where we are, to come on up, come back up, come back up to where you belong. You are seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus, not settling for less. Not settling for less than who you are and for who Jesus has called you to be. Not settling for less than the fullness of Jesus. So let me ask you and let me ask me tonight. Are you living with the fullness of Jesus? This fullness of Jesus that Paul writes about here. Are you living with the full reality of who you are and where you are? Are you living in unity with him and in unity with each other and living out the holiness that you have been given by Jesus? Aware of his presence, growing in maturity, in building up the church. Whatever it is that you're facing at the moment, if you're someone who at the moment you're feeling, I have been brought low by whatever it is. And know that Jesus has brought you high. He has brought you high to the highest possible place with him. 
And you are called, and I am called, to a life of depending on him and depending on each other as the body of Christ. You haven't been called to a life of stepping into a building and listening to long talks. You haven't been called to become fixated with a particular style of worship, but to live a life of love. To know that you are dearly loved children and to be the people of Jesus' presence to a world that is in desperate, desperate pain. To live a life of love to those who are near and to live a life of love to those who are far. To those who feel excluded and to those who think they're included. And when we learn to love God, when we learn to love ourselves properly, And we will love each other and be a place of love for the world. Amen.